In the closing moments of our last session, I described the emotional response I experienced while seeing Star Wars. It was, in some ways, a child's response. I don't mean childish, a mere mental merry-go-round ride, but a child's response in the sense of truly enjoying the ride while being able also to evaluate as an adult the mechanism I was riding on. I was aware on two levels. On the emotional level, I was stirred by the visual effects, the powerful music, music which arguably, by the way, was the power behind the ultimate success of the film series, I think. But I was moved also by the story. And childlike, I easily laid aside all the obvious holes in the plot, the silly dialogue, the times when Princess Leah accidentally seemed to slip into a temporary British accent, which she didn't have the rest of the film. None of that mattered because it was the story that was gripping me and the rest of my culture on a heart level, using symbolic language. It was a story which bypassed the more adult logical mind in order to plant vision, not just give information. My adult mind, however, was educated enough theologically and philosophically to be attuned to the spiritual mixture, even back then. So while enjoying the ride, I also knew something was happening in the spirit realm that would take the Western culture in a direction never done before, and that it would have strong implications. Because we are as hungry for stories as we are for food. Food transfers biological life, stories transfers the life of the soul, our identity, our sense of purpose and destiny. In scripture we're told in Psalm 78, tell your children and your children's children so that they might set their hope in God. Tell them what? Tell them the story of who we are and where we came from and where we're headed. Many adults we encounter who suffer from certain forms of depression speak of their childhood as not being bad necessarily, but they describe it as just one long gray blur, referring to the total absence of dialogue, of color, of music, of right brain stimulation, the absence of stories. Many of these sufferers are of the same generation who so powerfully responded to the unfolding genre of fantasy, science fiction, and sadly, the increased horror that would dominate the rest of the decade and take us through the 1980s. By the time we had digested all of Star Wars, Close Encounters, Indiana Jones, E.T., and Aliens, and all their offspring, a portal opened in the soul of a generation which had been growing up without vision, without fathers, and without a sense of purpose and destiny. The theme became the fatherless sojourner, the lonely, insignificant every man who finds himself or herself called to make an epic journey, facing insurmountable odds and evils, demanding trials, battles, and a soul-bonding relationship or relationships who finally wins in the happy ending of the victory and, most importantly, of reunion with the loved ones and the sh sharing of ongoing life together. Of course, this story theme doesn't begin with the generation of film. The very meaning of an odyssey comes from the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer. Dozens of similar themes run down to us through storytelling history. Still, by the time we reach the Christian myths of Narnia and Lord of the Rings, the theme of fatherlessness is 
present strongly. In Narnia, the, the Pevensey children uh, have a father, but he's off at war, which portrays Edmund as suffering in character development from that lack, emphasized more in the film than in the book. In Lord of the Rings, Frodo only has Bilbo, who is somewhat removed from him emotionally. In Star Wars, Luke is fatherless. A still stronger fatherless theme is seen with Elliot in E.T., and by the time we get to the new century, the orphaned Harry Potter. All these stories have a huge following because of the basic universal themes. They touch the nerves of loneliness millions would relate to, but they also offer meaning and hope to the fatherless that there is purpose, strength to face the future, and a potential replacement family embraced along the way to ultimate victory over evil and a happy ever after ending. These deeper elements, with the additional force of current high-tech accoutrements, music, special effects, etc., increase the total impact, but none of that would matter without the core story to give the secondary elements a place from which to work. The story, even more so with all the added artistic supports, has been a trumpet call that demanded some level of response from the emotionally orphaned to rise up and take hold of a different level of life. No one might ever admit to anything so dramatic as what I just said, but why didn't we go see the same films over and over, buy all sorts of stuff related to it, and have a religious experience when the technology arrived that allowed us to reproduce it in our own homes, on our own screens? We were not meant to live life sitting and staring at an electronic storyline. So why do we do it? In the case of Narnia and Lord of the Rings, the high mythic vision really can rise to the heavens because the story has its roots deep in solid, real things. The universe of Lewis and Tolkien is one filled with the invisible holy heaven and the good earth. The evil, the unholy, is an aberration brought on by rebellion against the good, and will eventually be overcome and destroyed. There is transcendent goodness and a clear and unreconcilable division between good and evil. There is no foggy mixture. As we move into the 1970s, the fog begins to roll in from the murky mixture of the chaotic ocean of Gnosticism. The nihilism of the post-war era and the drug, occult, and violently sexual rage of the 60s, which we previously briefly examined, had left a great hole in the soul of the culture, so it was hungry for a return of higher meaning, but not willing to go all the way to the cross to find that higher meaning. Now, a lesser spirituality was far more attractive, not only because of our fallen resistance to God, but because the church had in many quarters gutted the gospel of its heart and soul, reducing the life of Jesus in us to theology, dogma, and rule-keeping. So it was easy for a lesser spirituality with a greater soul attraction to become the Pied Piper as the fantasy machine began to crank out just the right product to meet the need. Remember again that it is the mixture that is most dangerous, partly because while affirming the part of the mixture that is good, even great, that may only serve to allow the bad part of the mixture to be swallowed more easily. And soon the bad would adulterate the good. There's no such thing as a crooked straight. 
Or as Lewis and Oswald Chambers both have said, there is no heaven with a little hell in it. But the artist's workshops are the devil's favorite places for cranking out the dangerous mixture. If we're starving for goodness, beauty, and truth, we will eat the mixture and it will taste like Turkish delight to us if we don't understand truth, meaning, image, symbol, and our longing and the nature of the war we're in. And if we go to the other extreme and become iconoclastic Pharisees, we will be so quick to throw out the bad, we will reject the good at the same time, and the enemy's work is still accomplished either way, either poisoned by Gnostic lies or deadened by religious legalism. We are hungry for a revelation of God. We are also in rebellion against him. We want his kingdom as long as we are the rulers. He longs to give us the kingdom, but knows we cannot have it until we give up our own crown. His eternal power and Godhead, as the King James Version puts it, has been revealed through creation around us and in us. We are given glimpses of the reality we hunger for in the sacraments of nature. Art is the enhancing and celebrating of those glimpses if they are life and not death. Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, the invisible things of God are clearly seen being understood through the things that have been made. But we need to pay heed to what happens to fallen man when he embraces the creation without the creator. He reaches upward, but not high enough, and then falls down low to a place he was never meant to be. Called to be sons of God, we reach for the godlike power without God and plummet to the very lowest realm of creeping things when we worship the created instead of the creator. In all our lives, in ministry, work, relationships, or art, we make him the center, and then all of creation becomes a source of goodness, beauty, and truth. We see reflected in every art form a glimpse of the eternal God means for us to be that way. It's his love letter to us in nature and in true art. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says, We now see only a reflection as in a mirror. But that implies that we were meant to see the reflection. Paul says in 2 Corinthians three eighteen, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being changed into his image from glory to glory. And this gazing is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's the Holman translation. Second Corinthians 4.18 We fix our eyes not on the things which are seen, but on the things which are unseen. How do we do that? Among other ways, we do it in art forms which come from the transcendent holy and therefore call us to it. Stories which retell or reflect or even just refer to the great story of transcendent reality stimulates our core being. As Augustine points out, we are made for God and our souls are restless until we find our home in Him. This longing for home, this good nostalgia, is the reason for the strange emotional pull we experience whenever we hear a story or a song 
or see an art form which has within it anything that stirs the imagination in that direction. We hunger for it because we long to unite to what is missing in us. We reach for the art form, but we really hunger for what it points to. Human beings themselves obviously generate more than any other sacrament, this power of carrying the image of God, since that's who we are. But this can generate two very opposite responses in us to the human, either to idolatry, as in pornography or even hero worship, or admiration, which leads us to follow the human incarnation of the godly signs and symbols beyond them to God himself. If we get stuck in the images, we become muddled and confused, and our longings become agony. Professing ourselves to be wise, we become fools and exchange the glory of God for mere creatures. But if we bypass the images and see them as signposts pointing us to home, then we're in ecstasy. So we need to understand the difference between these two. We also need to understand the various layers of meaning a person or story symbolizes. It is the transcendent glow shining through great stories that so hooks us because it speaks directly to our heart's longing and whispers that fulfillment is possible. Stories rooted only in this world with no acknowledgement of the spirit leave us dead and empty. Even the atheist has to borrow or steal from the spirit in order to make stories which have any appeal. Star Wars had to find the Force, Screwtape's materialist magician. A little later, Spielberg begins Indiana Jones with an encounter with Yahweh, but almost immediately repents to the Hollywood politically correct crowd for such exclusivistic narrow-mindedness on his part and couldn't wait to make amends in the second Indiana Jones by celebrating the demonic and offering it as just another equally valid form of worship. Not atheism, but maybe worse, eclecticism, which happily mixes the holy with the unholy. Muddy mysticisms were still at the center of things in the third Indiana Jones, as Jesus is mixed with the occultism of the Knights Templar. Then the final Indiana Jones story comes fully to reveal Spielberg's true spirituality. Aliens are our parents. Atheism has to find its gods, and the new craze is to turn to outer space and pray for E.T. to save us. See, even the unbelieving heart reflects the true in its stories, often inadvertently. For instance, speaking of E.T., did you notice how E.T. shadows the gospel in a weird way? Now, I don't know the belief system of its author, but E.T. comes down from the heavens, lives among us, heals with his touch, has a heart open and warm, brings life out of death, dies himself, rises again, promises to be always in Elliot's heart, and ascends with a rainbow of promise in the sky, implying hope of soon reunion. Superman is similar, conceived by two young Jewish boys from New York City during the war years. He comes down from heaven. He and his father are one. He has powers beyond mortal men, goes into the wilderness, and returns at age 30 to begin his public work. It's in our DNA to cry out to our source and long to reunite with him. Only our selfish rebellion hinders it, 
since he's always reaching towards us. So when an atheist wants to write a story that is in competition with Narnia, he must borrow transcendence in order to come up with a successful storyline. Hence, British educator Philip Pullman, who writes an anti-Narnia children's book series called His Dark Materials. In this series, Pullman explicitly and loudly proclaims himself as the direct enemy of Lewis, of Narnia, and of course of God himself. Those who celebrate Pullman's fairy tales don't seem to notice that he had to borrow from the transcendent in order to write stories that push a sort of spiritualized atheism. Spiritless atheism has never produced any fairy tales. When you die in Pullman's world, you go into the great twinkly twilight of non-spiritual materialistic nothing. He spends language to describe this death even as dazzling to the imagination. But at the end of it, you are just dead. Nothing more. And all his razzle-dazzle prose will not change the fact that you are just dead. You are a stack of decaying animal flesh rotting in the earth and not a twinkling addition rising up to the stratosphere. You are no addition to anything. You are just a final, meaningless subtraction like plain old spiritless atheism always offers. Listen to the glitz of Pullman's attempt to bring meaning into meaninglessness. The first ghost to leave the world of the dead was Roger. He took a step forward and turned to look back at Lyra and laughed in surprise as he found himself turning into the night, the starlight, the air, and then he was gone, leaving behind such a vivid little burst of happiness that Will was reminded of the bubbles in a glass of champagne. If I thought Darth Vader was the fulfillment of Screwtape's longed-for materialist magician, Pullman has far surpassed him. In direct open war waged on the true God, or I should say, a totally false God Pullman wrongly presents as the true, Pullman creates a mythology for the atheist by offering a non-spiritual spirit world. Exactly what Lewis predicted would rise up from the abyss when he wrote Screwtape in the early 1940s, the real materialist magician of which Darth Vader was just a mere herald. And Pullman does this by doing exactly what most atheists accuse Christians of doing, that of completely denying the rules of logic while appealing to merely imaginative wishful thinking. His description of death as a burst of such happiness that it reminds the reader of champagne bubbles, is so vapid in the face of the real realities of death and the human longing for meaning that reading it is like chewing cardboard for an excellent treatment of Pullman's work as well as several other aspects of this study that you'll find helpful. Please get Gene Veith's book, The Soul of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. V-E-I-T-H, Gene Veith. Now, humans are the image bearers, and that's why stories that portray the human in transcendent terms hook us. First John 4.20 says, Whoever does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
Jesus' followers are, according to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, a letter known and read by all men. If that can be so, then all men created in God's image have some degree of revelation of God manifested in and through them because even in our pre-conversion we are still image bearers, though a broken image. We read the signs in all our human experience and interaction. This is what all stories do, some obviously more than others. And sometimes something hooks an entire generation via a story which in itself is not a popular vehicle, yet the the hook makes the storyline so popular that even in a time when the subject is not popular in normal culture, it becomes iconic and never goes away. Example, Star Trek. Aired in 1965 at a time when science fiction was not popular, this TV show only lasted three seasons, yet has never left us and has only increased in audience appeal. Why? What hooked so many of us? There was an obvious absence of any transcendent supernatural. There was only the power of humanistic myth. The future belongs to the scientific accomplishments that open up the vast universe for exploration, a metaphor for an unlimited eternal future without God. Space aliens of all concoctions are our companions in this never-ending search for strange new worlds. The introduction of social and political issues thinly veiled as alien encounters set the stage for a corporate cultural mind shift toward humanism world socialism, space alien contact, earthly societal transformation, and all that with inexhaustible energy of man at the center of the universe, clearly devoid of any divine interference or interaction. Stories which made some reference to God were offered as science fiction myths, helping us understand God as maybe a huge alien yet to be encountered or more commonly as being found within us all. Not so much in reference to pantheism as to man worshiping himself. All this was already in the materialistic bent and had been there since the turn of the century. So it wasn't the space age stuff or even the subtle social reconstruction sermons that hooked us. What grabbed the audience weary of decades of 1950s science fiction, was the human interaction. It was the human interactions and relationships of the main characters. Kirk, whose very name was taken purposely from the old Gaelic word for church. Kirk represents the spirit. Spock, cut off from all emotion, Bearing the name of the, at that time, current intellectual talking head of the day, Dr. Spock, represented the cold intellect, the emotionless thought. And then finally, Bones, the physician, keeper of the body. Spirit, soul, and body. Kirk, Spock, Bones. The image of God in action, though obviously cut off from God himself. Still, this interplay among the three sank its teeth deep into the psyche of millions, and it is interesting to note which episodes people liked in reruns. Records indicate that the most sought-after stories are the ones in which Spock shows deep emotion, 
and or ones that emphasize warmth and affection between Kirk, Spock, and Bones. Now, did the likes of Gene Roddenberry, the author of Star Trek, who was a protege of L. Ron Hubbard, a disciple of Aleister Crowley, did he purposely use biblical formula? It is the Bible that explains man as being a triune being made in the image of the triune God. Did he mean to do that? Well, whether yes or no, the inescapable formula still remains in order to write a compelling storyline which captures and engages an audience into an emotional connection with the story. The elements of man as triune made in the image of the triune God has to be present. And it is. Kirk the spirit, Spock the mind, Bones the body, all working together. This same formula becomes more and more evident in the rising and compelling stories that have become our current mythologies. Narnia, Edmund, is the body or desire. Goes after Turkish delight at the expense of his loved ones. Peter is the mind, the will. And Lucy is the spirit or the heart. In Lord of the Rings, Gollum is body and desire. Sam is mind and will. And Frodo is the spirit or the heart. As we've already stated in Star Trek, Bones is the body, Spock is the mind, Kirk is the spirit. In Star Wars, Han Solo is the body or the desire. Princess Leia is the mind or the will. And Luke is the spirit or the heart. And finally, in Harry Potter, Ron is the body or the desire. Hermione is the mind or the will. And Harry is the spirit or the heart. This study is taken from John Granger's book, How Harry Casts His Spell, a book I would recommend for any of you who want to study this concept in more detail. There are many other layers of meaning behind great stories which contribute to why we come under their influence so strongly. Coming to understand how this works not only contributes to a better understanding of what the story is really about, but also helps us to discern what is what it is doing in us and to us. It greatly enhances our ability to read the signs as they sway the culture. The bottom line is, it is the human element that we are longing for and that we deeply respond to. Everyone does philosophy, even your kids who hate the thought of it. What goes on in the university is the theory of philosophy, according to Ravi Zacharias. What happens in the arts is the illustration of that theory. And what happens at your kitchen table after watching what the arts has produced is the outworking of that theory. So everybody does philosophy. What happens in the philosophical classroom is what produces what goes on on your television, in your mu music and movies, and art forms of various kinds. And that begins to eat into your kitchen table and your living room and your bedroom and all your human relationships. If it is the human we are attracted to in the arts because the human bears the image of the creator, it is vital if we are to be people who follow Jesus faithfully that our arts are in line with reality, with his beauty, goodness, and truth. The old devil-infested order is burning itself out. 
Like a sun about to nova, it is swelling larger and bigger than ever before, before it implodes to its death. As the darkness falls on the closing days of history, we will fulfill the description of the prophet Daniel. Those who understand shall shine like the stars. Stars show up brightest and clearest when it's most dark. This means, though, that if we are to shine like the stars in the growing darkness, that we do not mix with the darkness. We shine. We don't mix. We are the strong opposite, not the complement to the dark. That means we must recognize the good when it's there, but just as strongly stand in opposition to the bad, and never more so than when the bad seeks to adhere to the good and use it as a passport into the minds and hearts of trusting but ignorant audiences. That means we don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, to use a much overused but still effective image. We cannot protect our children from all evil in culture by hothouse overprotection. We must be able to discern, that means to separate the good from the bad. We not only alienate non-believers when we just castigate art forms with no discerning discretionary explanation for our position, but we also make our children defenseless in the face of future confrontations with evil mixture if we have not trained them to discern. Hebrews five twelve through 14 For by now you ought to be teachers, yet you still have need to be taught the elementary principles of God's word all over again and have become those who are in need of milk and cannot digest strong meat. For strong meat belong to those who are of mature, who by reason of exercise have trained their senses to discern the difference between what is good and what is evil. Of course, this requires parental discretion as to what a growing child and a later teenager is capable of handling. But trying to overprotect them from the evils of the world, keeping them watching VeggieTales, with all due respect to VeggieTales, when they ought to be able to engage the mixed nuances of Harry Potter and eventually face the raw satanic evil in real life of a Schindler's List is a failure in good training. Now, of course, as I've stated already several times, it's not merely in film that we engage this training. I'm not suggesting that if you have not viewed Schindler's List with your high school senior, you're failing as a parent. But I am stating clearly that if we have not engaged our older teens with dealing with reality in the world of evil, conflict, and right choices in the face of temptation, we are failing. This can be done apart from film viewing, obviously, but there is no getting around the fact that our culture is now, for good or ill, a film-dominated one. And to be able to grapple with that art form is a necessary and now dominant portion of cultural confrontation with truth. Mixed symbols send mixed signals. Why am I in my approximate twelfth hour of teaching on symbol and image? Because the attack on truth in our current anti-educational system is an automatic attack on right symbol, and right image. When the symbols die, we die too. When the symbolic truth fades, our humanity fades too. 
When symbolic systems become mixed, the signals which should point us to life-giving reality become mixed with poison. I find myself saying the same things from many angles in hopes that it will help us fully digest what is so lacking. If we can recapture the full biblical symbolic system, it goes a long way in recovering our lost humanity. It's very common and very, very dangerous to allow ourselves to believe that what is is therefore normal simply because it is. Let me revisit a quote from Professor Alan Bloom, which I only alluded to previously from his book, The Closing of the American Mind. Professor Bloom spends two agonizing pages describing the cesspool of the average teenage home entertainment environment with an accuracy so rare among the intelligentsia circles he normally would be welcomed by that it, it explains their total hatred and rejection of his book. It was simply too much truth for their ivory tower psyches to be able to bear. After his autopsy of the cause of death among us, he closes this section of his book with these words. This phenomena is both astounding and indigestible, but still is hardly noticed. It is routine and habitual, but it is of historic proportions that society's best young and their best energies should be so occupied. People of future civilizations will wonder at this and find it as incomprehensible as we find the caste system, witch-burning, harems, cannibalism, and the gladiatorial games. It may well be that a society's greatest madness seems normal to itself. It takes purposeful will to battle against this cesspool that Professor Bloom referred to. And many may have that will, but if it is only energized by religious guilt, it will only produce shame or fights or both. It takes informed minds and inspired hearts to have the health and the energy necessary to both counter the evil and inspire the good such a life-enhancing vision will, yes, rebuke the evil, but it will do so in a way that is so full of light, joy, and meaning that our very presentation inspires toward the good, which automatically rebukes the bad. Then, rather than imposing shame, we awaken life, which fills the void where the evil was trying to invade. This is why we must be informed. We must do what Hebrews 5 says. We must practice discernment by feeding on the good and the true, that we are then able automatically to discern the difference between what is good and what is evil. That will mean not separating things by shallow categories. This is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. For kids of most any age will pick up on that and they see it as undiscerning, categorizing, and feel it to be an unfair judgment. And it is, often. That means they will then take the side of whom they consider to have been unjustly mistreated as underdogs. No, where there is some good, we must be able to affirm it. That gives more moral power to then equally rebuke the wrong. It's the most common of errors for authority figures to castigate an art form wholesale with no regard for any good that may be in it 
That is, if there is any good in it. Yes, some are so dark as to be devoid of any redeeming quality whatsoever. But even then, it is far better to ask, well, tell me why you like this. And then be a humble, loving listener. Once we find the common ground of why it is something they like, whether you're speaking to your teenager or to a friend, then we have the common ground of conversing on what those feelings mean, where those feelings are coming from, and what might be a more life-giving alternative to that particular interest. But it's even better when we can ward off the invasion of the wrong symbols by discerning the bad early on and replacing that with the good. Our current culture is populated by a generation or two, or maybe three, who are well-fed slaves. We don't deliver them by simply depriving them of their current diet. No matter how much we warn of its poison, we must have better food to offer, and we must know the ingredients of our own recipes as well as how to recognize the poison. The trend toward mixture of the good and the evil is at its height now. Just a few examples which are currently either in theaters or just released on DVD. Maleficent was the clearly evil witch in Sleeping Beauty when I was a boy, but she's been redeemed recently by the Gnostic magic of Disney Studios. She's now the misunderstood heroine. Then there's Dracula Untold, currently in the theaters. It explains to us that going to Satan for power to fight evil is a good thing. Sometimes we don't need another hero, the trailer tells us. What we need is a monster. But long before these current examples, the prince of the power of the air was at work to deceive by increasing the mixture. And his own image, that of the dragon, became one of his favorite subjects. In 1996, Disney, again, came out with Dragonheart, was a bold leap forward for Gnostic mixture and anti-Christian symbolism. The dragon is a misunderstood, wise, good being. He's even called Lord by the heroine who bows to him. The only Christian presence in the film is there, obviously, just for ridicule. The current film dragon theme in the theaters today is called How to Train Your Dragon. One, two, and soon to be three. These films are entertaining, they're truly funny, and provide emotionally engaging characters that easily endear themselves to all ages. They are overall positive films for family viewing. The Christian reviewers all affirm the good and warn only of here or there off-color references and give these films four stars. There is no mention in the Christian reviews of the most obvious concern— that the message in the movie is that the dragon is our friend, or can be. Remember Eustace Scrub in Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Because of his greed, he's changed into a dragon. Having not read the right books, he was not aware of the dangers. Lewis's message is clear. Dragons are not to be trifled with. Dragons are not your friend. Dragons will destroy you. There's a bumper sticker here in the mountains I see now and then that says, Do not interfere in the affairs of dragons unless you fry up crispy and go good with ketchup. Yeah. Michael O'Brien says, quote, Actual dragons may or may not have existed, but that is not our main concern. 
What is important is that the Christian symbolism of the dragon refers to a being who actually does exist and who becomes very much more dangerous to us the less we believe he exists. I do not want one prowling in my children's minds. I do not want them befriending it. I do not want a dragon calming their instinctively good fears and in the process being taken by the dragon. The imagination must be fed good food or it will become the haunt of monsters. End quote. It's from A Landscape with Dragons by Michael O'Brien, Ignatius Press. This has been just a mere introduction to a vast arena of spiritual warfare regarding mixture, seduction, Gnostic lies, and entertainment. My hope is that it will inform you enough to move you to a new level of watchfulness, not as a witch hunter, but as a loving guardian of those you have influence with. I've made only the briefest reference to the pre-Nazi seduction during the Weimar Republic, the fascination they had with the diabolical, the sexually perverse, and the will to power. What they imagined in the 20s became their reality in the following decades. Dr. Russell Kirk said in a lecture titled Reflections on the Moral Imagination that, quote, a people who reject the right order of the soul and the true good of society will in the end inherit fire and slaughter. When culture is deprived of moral vision, the rise of the diabolical imagination is the inevitable result. What begins as rootless idealism soon passes into the sphere of narcotic illusions, then ends in demonic regimes. That's a paraphrase by Michael O'Brien of Dr. Kirk's lecture. We have an opportunity to meet the current wasteland of hyper-energized but vapid film orgies with the human encounter that comes from telling great stories that awaken the longing for the great story and we can do this, yes, even in film. And when we do this, we not only to some degree dilute the flow of poison, but we offer the only antidote to its life-destroying effects. We offer a life itself. Years ago, we were all stacked in the den watching a little house on the prairie, which was quickly sending signals that it was going to be a tearjerker. Our then 18-year-old, got up and turned off the lights so everybody could cry in private. After it was all over, all the boys scattered, playing like it was no big deal, except our 18-year-old. He leaned his head into my chest for a moment, then quietly asked a very important question. Why do we watch things on TV instead of live them out in real life? I didn't answer. He wasn't looking for philosophy at that moment. He was looking for life. So he stood there for a moment and incarnated with me the spirit of love that was now present in real time and space, not on the screen. His was not only a good question, it was the most important question related to our present study here. Why do we watch stories instead of live them out for real? Yet, Without the story we watched on the screen, I would not have had that good question asked me. We would not have had that real life moment to share. And I would not have the treasure of it to pass along to you here. The stories make the moments where the stories can be retold 
and that inspires more stories. May God grant us the grace to tell the kind of stories which will engender the right questions, which then might result in real-life encounters that bring life everlasting. We pray that and trust God to do it. In us, for us, and through us. In Jesus' name.